You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics, while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic and theological questions of the day. Hello, everyone. Glad to have you along with us uh, as we celebrate and uh, think back on uh, what this Holy Week uh, is called, you know, or what what had happened. And uh, as we ponder this week and the events that transpired, Brian and I are going to discuss some of the events that happened just after this week occurred. Uh, hello, Brian. Welcome to welcome to Bellator Christie. Hey, Curtis. How you doing, my friend? <laughs> good, good. Hey, uh, uh, that was a great article on Bellator Christie you put up um, just recently. Um, I really enjoyed that. Well, thank you, sir. I have exciting news regarding that article. Uh, it actually has been approved by to run on Moral Apologetics, uh, Dr. David Baggett's uh, website. Uh-huh. So that'll be coming out uh, sometime later this week. Uh, I think maybe Friday, and it's also going to be running on the Christian Post as well. Uh, so oh, awesome. uh, it's going to get some exposure there, and uh, hopefully it'll be something that will benefit the church, because I do believe um, that this COVID-19 virus has challenged, in large part, our ecclesiology. And by ecclesiology, we're talking about the theology of the church. And and really, Jesus leaves a challenge for us. He left for the disciples least for all of us, in indicating that we as a church are not an institution, we're not even uh, a brick-and-mortar place, but rather we are the people, we're the bride of Christ. And um, as a church, uh, that's as a church, it helps us to understand these uncertain times we're going through, that we've been in situations like this before, we will get through this, and the church will continue to stay strong, uh, you know, even right. to the time of Christ. There's going to always be a remnant, even to the time of Christ. Right. Yeah, and uh, your third point in that uh, the church is an organism, not an organization, um, that is that is such a, uh, a strong point to make and to bring out in this time when we really understand that we might not be tied to a building right now. And so it's given us the idea or given us maybe uh, the thought uh, that we as a body are more moving as an organism rather than an organization. You don't have a house to go to or a place to go to. Well, and the interesting thing to consider, too, is, is something Dr. Cleaver brought up in a patristic theology class that uh, you know Ken Cleaver said that the first actual church building did not come along until around the year 250 A.D., so the uh-huh. first 250 years of the church, almost, were met in houses. Uh, they, they maybe have met in synagogues when the synagogues weren't in use because, of course, the church met on early on Sunday morning. Uh, but by and large, they met in people's homes. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of our concerns about the church, which we need to be concerned about our culture, I'm not saying that, but... I think right. a lot of our concerns are based more on the mode and method that we've been doing church, but it may be even be that by doing going back to the house church model that God brings forth a huge revival 
in the midst of all of that. And so the church is always going to be here. We may do it differently as time progresses, but it's always going to be here in some form or fashion. Right. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, hey, we had some great questions uh, that came in on the Bellator Christie website. And by the way, uh, crowd, I want to say um, we thank you, um, and and we really love this type of interaction. That's what we started uh, the the whole Q and A uh, part of the Bellator Christie uh, website. So, Brian, you want to start us on these questions? Yeah. What do you want first, the easy one or the hard one? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> With, uh, we'll start with the one that was posted first. This was posted on April 2nd, 2020 at 7.30 a.m. Of course, I'm in Eastern time zone, so depending on where he comes from, depends on what time he sent this in. So he said, uh, uh, this comes from a guy named John. John says, so I know you are very knowledgeable about the new age. I'm doing this breathing technique where you inhale for four seconds, hold seven seconds, then exhale for, exhale for eight seconds. So far, this has been effective at activating my parasympathetic nervous system because I'm trying to overcome some traumatic symptoms. I have renounced all New Age stuff like meditation, mindfulness, etc. But right now, I'm at the point where I can't take it anymore and don't care if it's bad or not. Is it okay to do this breathing technique or not? If not, what can I do to overcome the trauma I have faced in the past and the effects that I am suffering today. Uh, l- let me first go into this, John, and say that I, I am one who suffers from anxiety issues. Uh, so I, I understand because I've used some of these breathing techniques myself. Um, one of the biggest things I, I would say to you is that um, the, the biggest thing that is is different between Christian meditation and New Age meditation. Uh, one of the biggest things is what our focus is on when we're doing these meditations. If we're simply trying to empty our minds, and if we hold to the whole issue of nirvana in Buddhism, Buddha believed that by emptying the mind, you became nothing because the whole goal was to become nothingness. I mean... He believed that you went through this will of reincarnation to the point that to escape the will of reincarnation, you became enlightened to the point that you emptied yourself of everything. Well, as Christians, I think we can practice different uh, styles of meditation than New Age, and that is by, by breathing techniques that are, that are prayerful. Um, and, I, and let me give this over to Curtis right quick, and then I've got a couple of resources that I want to share with you on this. So, so let me go to Curtis first yeah. and I'll come back. Yeah. Um, and John, I, I would first say, um, trust the Lord with every bit of your being, uh, and seek his peace. The peace that he gives you as you're reading the word and as you're doing it, it says in the scriptures, it says to, to meditate on God's word every day and constantly. And that doesn't mean, uh, meditate like what, like what an Eastern religion means of meditate. It actually means almost, the identical idea of a steak marinating in the fridge. Um, you absorb in God's word, and as you're doing that, you're thinking about what God's comforting you with and what and the words that are there. And you can use the breathing technique as you're meditating on that or as you're breathing or actually praying prayer through those. As far as breathing-wise, I don't have a problem 
with just doing breathing techniques is what are you what are you thinking or what are you processing or are you empty in your mind like the new age calls you to do um in the scriptures it does tell us that uh we are to take in god's word and meditate on god's word and to actually fill our mind with that not empty it it says do not be transformed or conformed to this world that's put into a mold and pushed into something that they want you to be but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and by renewing your mind you're filling it with scripture and prayer absolutely and and i found what i was looking for as curtis was saying that the biggest difference is the focus that we're, we're, we're using during the process of doing this. A couple resources uh, I, want, I want to share with you. First of all is a book by Gary Neal Hansen. Gary Neal Hansen, uh, he earned his uh, Ph.D. at Princeton, assistant professor of church history and whatnot at University of do how do you say that? Dubuque? I have no idea. Whatever it is. Anyhow, Neil, <laughs> Gary Neil Hansen. Let me just go back to his name. Gary Neil Hansen. And his book is called Kneeling with the Giants Learning to Pray with History's Best Teachers. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, first and foremost, you may not find all of the prayers in this book helpful. And he will tell you that in the introduction. Uh, but you may find some techniques in prayer techniques that may actually help you uh, as you're as you're meditating on on God. For instance, uh, here's a couple that we find here. Um, and on page 36, we see the prayer of Martin Luther. Martin Luther uh, used to what he used to do is he used to go through the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, and as we forgive those who trespass against us, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. What he would do is he would break this down, and he would focus on these different sections of the Lord's Prayer. And so even as you're breathing and meditating, uh, you may want to pray just as you're breathing in, Our Father in Heaven. And then as you breathe out, contemplate what that means, calling Our Father in Heaven. Uh, focus on some of the attributes of God. Uh, so as you're breathing in, Our Father in Heaven, as you breathe out, you can, can, can think about what these things mean. Uh, and maybe even pray a prayer as you do so. Hallowed be thy name. What does it mean for his name to be holy? And so on and so forth. Uh, on page 53, he gives another example, which I find very useful uh, with breathing techniques. It's called the, the Jesus Prayer. And some of the pilgrims used to do this. He says, I gave my prayer class at the seminary a simple assignment. Say the Jesus prayer for five minutes a day. That is, just sit quietly and repeat this prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And so what he says as he goes forward in this is as you breathe in, you can say Lord Jesus Christ. As you hold it, say Son of God, or at least in your mind. And as you breathe out, you can say have mercy on me. So there are breathing techniques that you can use, especially if you've suffered trauma and things of that nature uh, that can help you. Another book that you may find helpful is from another person who is uh, deals with severe anxiety. 
Uh, I deal with anxiety. He, he's dealt with it in more intense fashions than I have. And that's a guy by the name of J.P. Moreland. Um, you may have heard him, very profound apologist, theologian over at Biola University. He recently wrote a book. It came out last year called Finding Quiet, My Story of Overcoming Anxiety and the Practices that Brought Peace. J.P. Moreland is a, is a profound Christian scholar and uh, very orthodox in his theology. And so he gives some, some methods that helped him in a Christian fashion uh, to find peace and overcome sometimes these uh, anxious moments that we have uh, and even sometimes the, of the uh, breakdowns, emotional breakdowns that can come with it when it's severe enough. So he shows a biblical method on how to deal with these issues. So I would recommend those two resources, J.P. Moreland, Finding Quiet, and Gary uh, Neal, uh, what did I say, Hansen Kneeling with the Giants. So those are the two that I would recommend. Right. Very good. So on to the next one. All right. So Eldon Armstrong asks, what is the scriptural basis for stating, I believe that the Jewish followers of God of the Old Testament are in heaven, thus Jesus is not the only way. Thank you and God bless you. So, Curtis, you want to tackle that first? Well, um, you know, I I heard this um, I heard this from from my pastor um, years ago, and and it's been something that just it helped me simplify in my mind what what the big picture is. Because if we remember the the story, the whole Bible is is a story of redemption it's it's paradise lost in the beginning and it's paradise regained in the end and all the way through it god's love is is coming and chasing us down and it all pinnacles at the cross amen and so it's it's everything in the old testament pointing and looking towards the cross having faith and trust and hope in that god was going to provide something and then from the cross, it's actually looking to Jesus, what the work did on the cross. So what everybody in this time looking back to the cross and, and actually working from that point and everything from before that, working to the cross, knowing God was going to provide. Amen. I, I agree 100%. And, and I think that uh, as, you, as you look through Scripture— uh, you can even find, I believe it was in Abraham, where, where God was going to use his people as a means of reaching the entire world. So there right. was almost like this evangelistic methodology that God used uh, even early on. And so some scholars have even said that the way that people have been are saved in the New Testament is exactly the way people have been saved in the Old Testament, all through the grace of God. And so if we look at Hebrews chapter, uh, well, first of all, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 37, uh, he quotes, he says, uh, uh, So for yet in a little while the coming one will come and not delay. And uh, that is quoting from, uh, trying to find where this is. Uh, well, I can't find the quote. Let's uh, see. Anyhow, anyhow, but my righteous one will live by faith. And here he quotes from Habakkuk, 
uh, the righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. So uh, he's, oh, here it is, uh, Isaiah 26, 20, he quotes in Habakkuk 2, 3 through 4. So the righteous shall live by faith. Uh, well, faith in in whom? And well, the faith is in God. Yeah, the the faith is in God's covenantal promise that He gave right. at that period of time. And so, um, in the new covenant we have through Christ, what we find is as we look at the old covenants, they are pointing to the new covenant, which is the ultimate covenant found in Christ Jesus. And so, in Hebrews chapter eleven, we see this hall of faith. Uh, we see Abraham is in this hall of faith, uh, Noah, a- Abraham, Sarah, uh, so on and so forth. All of these individuals are accounted or accredited as righteous by faith in God. Well, if we have a triune, a Trinitarian understanding, then we understand that Jesus is God come in the flesh. He is, as John says, the eternal Logoth. So he's always existed. He is God come in the flesh. So with that in mind, the grace that they, the the person they trusted in was the triune God. So they're still trusting in Jesus. But ultimately what they're doing, as Curtis said before, is they're looking forward, looking to the promised Messiah, the covenant that was to come. And so what we do as Christians is we're looking back at the one who came and the work that was done on the cross. That's what we're doing this now on this Holy Week, Good Friday. Right. We're looking back at what Jesus did. Even at Easter, we're looking back at what Jesus did, defeating death, hell, and the grave. But the wonderful thing about this is that Easter transcends time. Because, in fact, that's the message that I'm delivering on Sunday. Um that Easter transforms us because as Jesus rose from the dead, so shall we in like manner be raised from the dead. So we all will have our own personal resurrections when Christ recom- uh, returns out of the eastern sky. Mm-hmm. And boy, what a day right. that's going to be. Right, right. Then you you know, you know talk or you look at, um, for example, even the events that occurred uh, just after the cross and Jesus's burial and resurrection. They talk about Jesus was there preaching to those that had gone. Absolutely. And, gone. Yeah. and you know, there's an amazing thing in that. And I, I hadn't even noticed this until the, really the past few months. I think it's an ancient uh, church father that pointed this out, that, uh, that Jesus is the archetype uh, for all of us. Because if you really yeah. think about this, Jesus died. Well, until Christ returns, we're all going to die the same death that Jesus died. Maybe not on the cross, but we're all going to physically die. As you mentioned, he has a a, a uh, living spirit where he is actively doing things between his death and resurrection. That's what we call the intermediate state. So for us to be absent from the body is to spiritually be present with the Lord. Then all of a sudden he has this resurrection well, when Christ returns, we're going to be resurrected as Christ resurrected. He then ascends into heaven. Well, the Bible tells us that when he comes, we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The whole word rapture means caught up. So we're going to be caught up in the air with Christ. So we're actually following in the model of Jesus as he came, he lived, he died, he rose again, and ascended into heaven. And we have something very comparable to that for the believers in Christ. Right, right. Yep. Well, hey, uh, we're going to get 
on to our main subject. Hope those were helpful to, to those people, and we will be praying for you guys. Uh, thank you for uh, writing those in, and, and uh, we just appreciate that. We really enjoy uh, those kind of things. But we're going to talk about events, or uh, maybe not events, but maybe um, uh, formalization of groups or words to form groups um, to, to keep moving in the same direction just after Christ's uh, death and resurrection. Um, and we're going to get into them today, and it's on the creeds. So, Brian, uh, first question, um, what are some of the more uh, notable creeds? Um, you know, I, I kind of already kind of already have one in my head, but, but go ahead. What are the more notables? Well, I, I guess what I need to do is first go back and explain what, what a creed is. So, so in the New Testament, you have this common theological doctrine that that exists before the New Testament is compiled, and um, it, it, they use many scholars use the word to describe this uh, uh, homologion, and and homo meaning the same, logos means or uh, means teaching, or it can mean logic or word. So homologion means the the same teaching. Okay, so it's the same te- teaching. It's common teaching that uh, the all the apostles had. It was the apostolic teachings what we're talking about, and this predates the writing of the New Testament. Uh, some of this may have been oral, some of this may have been written, or it may have been a combination of both. But what we find is that some of the homologia or this common teaching was was formalized. Uh, in such a manner that was easy for new Christians to memorize. So sometimes there may be a rhythmic pattern to them. Uh, sometimes you may find Aramaic terms in these formalized uh, statements. Uh, you, you see patterns that sometimes coheres with what you see in uh, the Psalms, uh, rhythmic patterns and things of this nature. Uh, you see um, a combination of... Uh, um, and that in uh, in, in Greek, uh, the the kaihoti is what it's called in Greek. Um, so you say such and such and that, such and such and that, such and such and that. So if you see that three times, that's that's a good clear indication that uh, the person's reporting information that was not original to themselves. Or if these terms, or if this uh, grouping of words uses terms that are not original to the author. That's a sign. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about New Testament creeds. Now we're not talking like about the Apostles' Creed or anything of the sort, but these creeds were early confessions, hymns, uh, statements of belief that uh, were gathered together as part of the early Christian movement and um, were formalized into statements of doctrine or statements of belief. And so in the New Testament, we find these uh, statements of faith which are known as the New Testament creeds. So the question was asked, what are some of the more notable creeds? Well, I actually have a paper here that uh, Dr. Gary Habermas gave us in class of, of some of the most major creeds in the New Testament. Uh, so we have uh, Luke twenty four thirty four is one of them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, uh, 
Uh, that's one of them, but we're going to talk about that a little bit more as, as the podcast progresses. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 23-25, this is the, uh, the statement of the passage of Scripture we normally read at communion. This is an early creed. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, there's a lot in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, the Acts summaries are, are major creeds. Um, anytime you see in the book of Acts... Uh, Paul or uh, Peter or anyone preaching a message, what those messages are are summaries of their total message. And those summaries have been formalized into this early Christian uh, teaching. So the fact that they're summaries, they have a rhythmic pattern to them, include that that's early material. Romans 1 through 4, uh, Creed. Romans 4 25. Romans 10 9. This is an early confession that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The whole right. statement stating that Jesus is Lord is, is huge in, in, in theology. And, and maybe we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But uh, we mentioned the first Corinthian passages. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is an early hymn. Uh, that's a powerful passage of Scripture. And then 1 Timothy 3, 16 uh, is another major uh, creed. So all of these, 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 there are other creeds, but these mark the most major creeds that we find uh, in, the, uh, in the New Testament. Right. And you said not necessarily... Apostles' Creed. What did you mean by that? Because that's, that's like the most well-known one that people really pay attention to. Yeah. So the Apostles' Creed is 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 a an early creed, and it's based off of the apostolic teaching, and and we hold that that is that constitutes the the uh, the essentials of the, uh, the the Christian faith. But when we talk about creeds in this sense. So, so when you think of the Apostles' Creed, it is a formalized version of apostolic teaching. In this sense, however, we're talking about smaller uh, passages of Scripture, smaller teachings uh, that are formalized in the same regard as Apostles' Creed. But a lot of times we th- when we say creeds, people think of the Nicene Creed or they think of the Apostles' Creed. This is early material we're talking about that's been formalized uh, and structured in such a way that can be easily identified. But understand that these creeds are not all of the early early Christian teaching out there because there is this body of this homilia. The problem is, is the homilia is a lot more difficult to pinpoint than these creeds are. The creeds are easier to pinpoint and identify, and they, they pose as a huge benefit to New Testament scholars and historians uh, to see what the earliest church believed about Christ. Uh-huh. All right. Well, that's uh, that's a good start from where we need to be able to set a base on on that. And you know, First Timothy three sixteen. That's something that uh, you know, even today, people are memorizing that verse, and it and it forms the creed. It does form a rhythmic uh, stance or stanza. Absolutely, I was trying. I was trying to get this passage of scripture up right quick. First uh, um, Timothy three, sixteen, and says this. Uh, and most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the word, and taken up in glory. Right there is your fundamentals of the Christian faith, right. even in that passage of scripture. 
Yeah. And, and you see that even, um, like you were saying, in Acts, when, when Peter says we can't help but preach what we've known, what we've seen. Yeah, and, and the amazing thing is I wrote a paper for one of Dr. Habermas's classes classes and found out that there's this amazing parallel between 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7 and the teachings of Paul in the sermon summaries as well as the teachings of Peter in uh, the Acts sermon summaries. And one of Paul's teachings in these early Acts sermon summaries, one of his teachings indicate the fact that the tomb was indeed found empty. Uh, on on the third day, so I think we have every reason to believe in the empty tomb. Uh, right. That it was early belief in the sermon summaries. Right. Well, this next question that we got here, it's going to be you already kind of run through it, but in how many New Testament books uh, are the creeds found? The amazing thing is that they're found in every single book of the New Testament, with the possible exception of the of the book of Revelation. Now, there are some wow. things that make you think that maybe there is something there. That would be a good topic of discussion for someone researching uh, the, the creeds. Are there creeds in the book of Revelation? You know, that would be something interesting to discover. But as, as far as right now, um, there have been creeds discovered in, in almost every book of the New Testament with the exception of Revelation. It's believed by many people, myself being included, that it's possible that John 1.14 and possibly the early verses in John's Gospel, uh, some of the first verses in John's Gospel may very well be creedal in formulation. Uh, I think it's very possible that it is because it has that rhythmic pattern to it. But every single book in the, in the New Testament has at least one creed in it. Uh, however, as I mentioned, Revelation is... is is questionable, but outside of Revelation, every other book does. That's amazing. That's amazing. It, and it, it does go to kind of um, a point or to point out that um, these were Jewish men, these were Jewish uh, people of the time, and they, and they were very smart, very well, very well uh, versed in being able to retain rhythmic knowledge or retain knowledge in a way that they could actually quickly recite it. It's no different today if you had a, a song that came on that here's two chord of song all of a sudden you can repeat almost every every word of that song. Um, it, that's kind of the same thing. And for people to think that um, the people of that time period didn't or weren't knowledge or weren't um, as smart as we are today, uh, there's there's a lot backing. We're dumber than they are. Oh, I was getting ready to say the same thing, uh, and I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, in doing some research, which I haven't, which I'm in the, in the throes of these final classes, trying to get them finished up. I'm, I'm in the process of working on a 30-page paper for on the methodology of Thomas Aquinas right now, but. Uh, um, I've begun looking at some things for a possible dissertation, and I was talking with a, and I won't give his name because I don't have permission to, to, to share who it is, uh, but I was speaking with a very notable New Testament scholar recently, and, and he told me that he believed that there are reasons to believe, that there are reasons to accept that some of the disciples uh, wrote down certain teachings that Jesus had. 
Um, sure. Now, paper wasn't as easy to come by, so you know uh, th- that was a difficulty. But but there's no reason to think that at least someone, maybe two or three people, could could have possibly uh, written down the teachings of Jesus. So you have this oral tradition, and possibly there there may be a chance that you even have some written traditions recorded right. early in the in the uh, ministry of the of the New Testament Church. Right. Yeah, and you know, understanding the the Jewish culture of that time period, the young men of that time, young kids, kids uh, would have the first five books of the law, first books of the Bible that we know as the Bible, memorized point that they could pick out the key words or stories or uh, shadows, types and shadows, points and phrases, those kind of things. They could point them out and they could recite those. Right there, exactly. And and my understanding, I may be wrong on this, but my understanding is is that before a person could teach in the synagogue on a book, they had to have memorized the book at least in part. And so, when you look at all the books that Jesus quoted, quotes from, yeah, th- that means that he must have done a lot of memorization of a lot of different books. Because remember, as he's teaching this, he didn't have a copy right. by his side. He is quoting this. From memory, right. uh, and uh, so it's it's really an interesting thing to consider. I, I agree with you. I think the ancient folks are a lot more intelligent than we give them credit for. Uh, <laughs> in fact, I even heard, uh, I even watched a uh, an episode of uh, on the History Channel, which I know you can't believe everything on the History Channel, but talking about some of the ancient. Um, uh, discoveries that the ancient Greeks had made. I mean, they were well advanced ahead of their time as well. So, sure. yeah, these, these folks in ancient times were very intelligent. Uh, right. Far more, I believe, than what we give them credit for. Right. Yeah, and sometimes probably lived a simpler life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it goes a long um, way. <laughs> <laughs> so, number three, uh, what do the creeds tell us? of the early beliefs of Jesus. This is an important one. I really I really want to dig into this one. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to give credit where credit's due. This goes back to Dr. Habermas. The early creeds give us the three fundamentals of the Christian faith. Death, deity, and resurrection. Death, deity, and resurrection. So the early creeds are all in agreement Jesus died on a cross. There's no denying that. Uh, the, the early creeds all tell us that, um, that that Jesus rose from the dead. But one of the most startling things, that, and this is the thing that, as I started st- studying these early creeds, that left me breathless was the fact that the earliest Christology, I believe Richard Baucom says this, if I'm not mistaken, the earliest Christology was the highest Christology. Because if you look at, for instance, the Philippians hymn, where it talks about Jesus emptied himself. Uh, let, let me flip to it right quick. Philippians chapter 2. Um, now, had I been an ancient person, then I may have had that memorized. Yeah, but I, you'd have had that memorized. <laughs> but let me just but you also it. got the computer that you can pull. You can pull it up now even quicker than even on your paper. So. This, this is true. Uh, I, I'm still a little old school, so I have my paper Bible here with me. Yeah, but, but just old school, old school sword drills. Yeah, those. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but but listen to this. This is all considered early. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Okay, so now we begin the the early hymn. Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, 
Did you catch that? Yep. Very first line, Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, powerful stuff here, Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here's something else that Dr. Habermas mentioned in class. And I hope you, mind, I hope you don't mind me um, borrowing some of his stuff here. Stealing or I borrowing. He, I, don't know, I don't know how you want to put think, that. I don't think he, I don't think he cares. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the amazing thing that he said. So I, I'm giving him full credit. This, this is... This comes from him, not me. One of the most important names for Jesus concerning his deity in the in the in the New Testament is not Son of Man and is right. not Son of God, right. but is the name Lord. In Romans ten nine, do you remember that early that early uh, confession that we just gave a while ago? That if right. you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Yes, Lord, yeah. That is huge for a few reasons. One, the word Lord is a trans, a kurios in the New Testament is in the Greek Septuagint a transliteration or, or a translation of the word Adonai. Adonai right. was used, uh, Lord, Adonai was used in the placement of the actual name of God, Yahweh or Yahweh, uh, which means the self-existent one, I am who I am. So the name is so holy that ancients didn't believe that we should even say the name, but should instead say Adonai. So every time the word for the personal name of God is used in the Greek Septuagint, they would instead use the term Kyrios, which means Lord. Now, there's another reason why this is so important. The emperors of Rome wanted people, they, they developed this, this emperor work, where they wanted people to say, Caesar such and such is Lord. Okay, And if a person did not say Caesar such and such is Lord, believing that he was God, then they could be executed. Well, look what the New Testament writers do. Look what the early Christians do. They don't say Caesar is Lord. They say Jesus is Lord. I think it's a Kaiser Jesus, uh, Lord Jesus. That is huge. That is identifying Jesus with Yahweh, and it's also identifying Jesus as being the supreme ruler over every governmental faction on earth. That is huge. It's mind-boggling, and this doesn't come later in the history of the church. This comes very early on, out the gates, in, in church history. Fantastic. That's just awesome. Yeah. It gives me uh, chills so, to even think about it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and when they, when they translated it or they put it into English for us, it's L-O-R-D, all capitalized. Exactly. And that's important yeah. for us to remember because so we continue, the reason we even do that now is we continue the practice that the ancients did with the Greek Septuagint uh, translating instead of the personal name of God, because that name is so holy, we translate it over to Lord. 
Right. Yeah, and which becomes a bit confusing when you have people um, of the era um, or of, of that time, they would still call them Lord, but it would be, uh, for example, to quote Shrek, Lord Farquaad, um, <laughs> but that was a capital L, lowercase O-R-D. And that was just meaning that he's a person of importance. Exactly, yeah. Yep. Number four, why is first five or 15, three through seven, so important? Well, First Corinthians fifteen is is accepted by by generally, I would dare say nearly every New Testament scholar uh, worth their weight in gold. Now, obviously, there's going to be some. Anytime you say all, there's always going to be an exception. It seems like, but by and large, nearly nearly all New Testament scholars will accept this as being early creedal material. Um, but what we find in this passage of Scripture, uh, in this early creed, is we see an early confession of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And we see even in this a list of individuals who witnessed Jesus alive, who, who witnessed the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And some of these individuals we hear about, we learn about in this creed, aren't mentioned as having a resurrection experience in other portions of Scripture. So, in fact, in this passage of Scripture, in this creed, we learn that Jesus at some point met privately with Peter. We don't hear about that in the Gospels. It's assumed It's assumed in some of the Gospels, but it's. I think Mark may even make a point to say, and Peter, he met with Peter. But this is basically the only place that tells us this. Um the, the the twelve we know about him appearing to twelve, uh, we don't hear about him really appearing to James, but right. we hear about that in this early creed. I believe right. you can, he probably was witnessed by James and and his family. I, I wouldn't see right. why he wouldn't appear to Mary and his family uh, if right. he appeared to James as well. Uh, we right. we hear about another passages of scripture where he meets with Paul, but it's here we learn. That he was met by, but he that he was witnessed by over five hundred people at one time. There's yeah. a possibility, the possibility. Now, some people have debated this with me and said that maybe it's not so. I, I think that it is possible that they only counted men in that number, so that the right. number may be higher than that. Now, some people again have disagreed with me on that, but uh, I haven't seen any evidence that would show why that's not the case. But, right. Uh, Every, everywhere else, we count it as, um, you know, when it says when when Jesus fed the five thousand or the four thousand or any of those, we 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 know that that was just men counted, and there could have been up to fifteen thousand men, women, and children fed. And absolutely, and and notice who isn't in this list. Uh, mysterious right. is 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 the women. This, the women aren't listed in this early creed, right. and we know there's good evidence to suggest that many early women count Jesus alive uh, very early on. So their absence makes me, I think, strengthens at least in my mind uh, the possibility that only 500 men were counted, and you could possibly be looking at potentially 2,000 people who saw Jesus right. alive at one time. It's possible, uh, right. at least. You want me to read it? Yeah, if you would, if you like. First <laughs> Corinthians fifteen three through seven. For I delivered to you of all, first of all, 
that which I also received. So he's saying that I've received this from, from as, a, as a group. Um, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, have died. The last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time, for I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, but because I, because I persecuted the church of God. And so you look at you look at all those reasons that that falls down below that. Um, he says after that he was seen by James, or before that he says you know, seen by James the apostles, and all the apostles. So I I sit and I I look at this Brian and I I can't help but think when when he talks about seen by the five hundred that that remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, meaning. That those are viable witnesses. You could actually go and talk to not or visit with them, have a conversation with them. Uh, you know, absolutely. And it makes me wonder. I honestly wonder because Jesus Jesus had 70 other disciples. Right. Uh, he had the 12 disciples and 70 other disciples uh, in addition to the 12. It makes me wonder if the 70 may not have been part of that number of the 500 who saw Jesus alive. And if that's the case then you have early apostolic testimony uh, from people who knew Jesus very early on who could identify the fact that this was indeed Jesus. It wasn't a copycat. It wasn't somebody who looked like Jesus. It was, in fact, Jesus that they saw resurrected. And so that actually, just in my mind at least, strengthens uh, the testimony of these witnesses that you find. Right. Yeah, and you see in here, the, the I'm, I'm hoping that the, the people listening... Are, are getting what we're talking about the rhythmic tones of these of these creeds um you could pick up on that almost just almost instantly a- absolutely well the and that and, that you have yep. and, and some of this some of this is a little more difficult to pick up in english as it is in the original languages because in the original languages they they have a different different pattern to them it's like even in hebrew i mean there, there are words that throughout the prophets uh, we really miss some some of the word plays that they use because some of the words that they use are so so similar and they rhyme the same thing is true with these creeds some of these creeds they have kind of a rhythmic pattern to them kind of like a chorus of a song we're we're repeating it a couple times with this rhythmic pattern you be, you begin to to absorb it and you learn it and you memorize it and it's easy to recite we better get moving. What are the other important New Testament creeds? Well, yeah, we had mentioned a bunch of them. Uh, some, some minor New Testament creeds that were that were mentioned. Uh, Romans eight thirty four is one uh, that was mentioned. First Thessalonians. Uh, let me flip over here. First uh, Thessalonians one nine and ten uh, is one that is uh, listed as a uh, as an, an early creed. Need to do those sword drills a little more often here. Uh, yeah, so four, First uh, Thessalonians one nine and ten four fourteen is considered um, 
We believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So part of the whole testimony, the whole rapture uh, theme where we're going to be called up to meet Christ in the air is considered creedal. Ephesians 1.20 is another uh, passage of scripture that's considered creedal. And 1 Peter 3.18. And uh, there are several right. more that we can mention, uh, several on this on this uh, piece of paper that I have um, throughout Romans, Philippians, Ephesians, as we mentioned, um, several of them that really identify uh, with, uh, again, the death, deity, resurrection of Christ being very early in the ministry of Jesus, and in the ministry right. of, the, of the church, excuse me. That's just amazing. So just how early, Brian, are, are some of the creeds found? How, how close to the death, burial, and resurrection are we seeing these creeds starting to be formed. Okay, now here is where it gets really fascinating. I knew I touched a good spot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, let, let's start with Airman. Okay, everybody know who we're talking about with Bart. Bart yeah. is not an evangelical. In fact, he's an uh, atheist-leaning agnostic. Okay, He dates 1 Corinthians 15, 3-7, no later no later than two years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Amazing. Richard Balkum, um, I believe that's right. Uh, I'm sorry, not Richard Balkum. Uh, James D.G. Dunn, I had the wrong name. In fact, Dunn may have been the one who mentioned uh, uh, the early uh, point I made earlier on about, uh, uh, I can't remember now, but I think it may have been James D.G. Dunn. But James D.G. Dunn, if I'm not mistaken, He's the one who says that uh, this material is most likely to within three to five months after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So we are talking about ground zero. Right. We're talking about the same year that Jesus uh, died and rose again. So we are talking early, uh, as early as one could imagine. So there's no way that this developed. There's no time for this stuff to develop by, by legendary invention, because this stuff was right there at the gate immediately as soon as the as the church was formed. Yeah, and you're talking, you know, these are these are biblical scholars that don't are not uh, on the same team. <laughs> oh, exactly, exactly. And even James D. G. Dunn, he would not be considered an ultra conservative Christian. Uh, right. And he's saying these type of things too, and that's just really profound uh, when you stop and, and think about it. And Jesus remembered uh, is the book that uh, that he says that in. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that's the one. Uh, Jesus remembered a uh, huge book. I think it's like something like six to seven hundred pages. It's a massive, massive book, but very interesting. Has a lot of great information in it. Mm. Um, well. Um I've got another question here, and I know we got just a few more minutes before we got to get close to shutting down, but um, one one that really has intrigued me, and it's part of the minimal facts, um, and and I, I really enjoyed this, uh, this thought or this statement because this, this kind of digs at the heart of, of humanity, um, is the embarrassing details of the resurrection. Now, I know that they're not, there's, some of these are not, you know, there, there's not any, well, there's, there's some creeds that point out to that, but 
but there's not a lot of um, not a lot of people that would go through life and write down the embarrassing stuff just so get beaten, tortured, and killed. Absolutely, and, and I'd like to make a shameless plug for my book, Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics, in this regard, too, because I, I cover some of this in that if you're interested uh, in, in some of in the conversation we're having, uh, you can find some, some information about the creeds and about the stuff that we're talking about even now. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of embarrassing details that we find uh, in, in the New Testament in general and even among the creeds. If we, if we stop and think about this, one of the most embarrassing things of all is the fact that Jesus was seen alive first by women. Uh, mm-hmm. Mary Magdalene especially had, we don't know exactly what happened with her, but she had a little, at least a little bit of a reputation. Um, you know, I don't believe that she was necessarily a prostitute. Some people have said that they thought that she was. I don't know that I buy into that, you know, um, but she did at least have we 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 hear something like what seven demons cast from her, uh, right. so it meant that she was maybe involved in something she should be in early life. We don't know, but but you have a lady who had been demon possessed, been freed from those de- that demon possession. She's one of the first people to see Jesus alive, and the other women are. That's not something you go around telling in ancient in ancient society, unless it's based on truth. Um, the fact that the disciples couldn't give Jesus a proper burial is huge because we're talking about an honor-shame culture, right, as many right. Eastern cultures are. Uh, and, and to not be able to give a family member or an esteemed teacher a proper burial is extremely dishonoring to the right. disciples and to the family. Again, that's not something that you would promote. That's not something you'd go around telling. The right. fact well, that you look at... You look at uh, like the the story of, of when you know the, how when John the Baptist had was beheaded, his disciples came and actually buried him right away. Absolutely, yeah. and, and, g- and giving him, him honor, giving him a proper burial. You don't see that. In fact, the the very fact that you have Joseph of Arimathea, part of the very same Sanhedrin that that condemned Jesus. Mm-hmm. is giving him a proper burial. Again, that's not something you would invent. Furthermore, this information being that early, the tomb is in Jerusalem, and you have a very notable person as the owner of the tomb. Now, if you want right. to make up a story, then you may go get old Joe Bill down the road, who no one hardly knows, and say, oh, I was buried in his tomb, and, and, and he popped out. Well, where's Joe Bill's tomb? Well, we don't know. It's somewhere in the holler, somewhere. You know... This is not what happens with the New Testament. Everyone would know where Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was located because he was a very prominent member of society. Uh, this would be like a governor. Where, where's the governor's mansion? Or where is the governor's tomb? People would right. know this. So right. that's not something, again, that's not something you would invent. Uh, right. if, if you're doing so and it's not true, well, then Christianity would have been dead before it ever started. Quite frankly, well, I look at um, another one that that point that sticks out in my mind, and it's and it's not necessarily part of um, a you know part of I guess all of the embarrassing details, but there's an embarrassing detail here that really has has really been on my mind for the past several weeks, ever since I started kind of just 
re going over the this whole you know this whole time period. Um, but it's Nicodemus. Okay, he shows up. He's he's the teacher of teachers. He's the rabbi of rabbis of that time period. And he comes to Jesus at night. Then he comes to Jesus at twilight. And then he's at the time that he's on the cross. He's out in public saying, "I'm going to help get this." Uh, body down off of here. I'm going to help get this body to the grave. Yeah, and, and so some people ask, well, why wasn't Nicodemus mentioned earlier? It, you know, why wasn't why weren't some of these me- people mentioned earlier? Well, it may have been for his own protection. You know, yep. some of the names were, are mentioned in John that you don't see in some of the other gospels, but it may be the fact that when Mark and Matthew were written, which I believe that there was a form of Matthew written before Mark, I'm one of the oddballs that you know believe that. Uh, but uh, you're talking about early material here. I think that right. Matthew and Mark are written far earlier than we think that they are. I think they were possibly written early 50s, maybe even potentially late 40s. Yeah, so it would have put Nicodemus at risk if he was still alive. Yeah, so if so, you go so mentioning some of these people during that time. Uh, this is before the fall of Jerusalem, and you're risking you're, you're risking them being hurt in, in a bad fashion. So the fact that you see them mentioned later on in John's gospel, when most of these people have probably passed, uh, I think you get a fuller understanding of what was going on in some of the names that were mentioned in that time. Right. Right. Well, Brian... Uh, this has been a fun one, um, and I hope it's uh, been helpful for those uh, that are uh, looking or leaning in this week, uh, what we call the Holy Week. Um, and tomorrow uh, is, is one of the big days to be really pondering and thinking about, and maybe even pick up one of the Gospels. Start le- reading through uh, Luke and, and, and reading what happened um, at this time period, maybe reading through John. Um some of the best parts uh, of John uh, when Jesus is praying the prayer in in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, hey, hey, Curtis, I, can, I, can, can, I'd like to make like a quick note here too, because sure. I, mean, I know we're going a little long, but you know this is Easter week, so I think we have permission right. to do so. <laughs> sure. Sure. But uh, I think Thursday, the Thursday night, obviously during Holy Week, you know, we want to stop and consider the fact that. We're celebrating the Last Supper, the the Passover meal that they're celebrating together. But there are certain times on Friday that I would encourage on Good Friday for people to take pause. Maybe even John, uh, who's having some issues, it might be good for him to, and as all of us as we're going through this pandemic, certain times this Friday, stop and take pause. Uh, For instance, 9 o'clock we know in the Gospels that what Jesus was condemned probably around eight-ish, maybe earlier right. than that. But uh, nine o'clock, we do know from the Gospel, Jesus went to the cross. So maybe stop and take pause at nine. Whenever nine o'clock in the morning comes in your in your time zone, just stop and take pause to think this was the moment when Jesus was crucified. Twelve right. noon, the Bible records that uh, the darkness fell across. The entire land. I believe it's here where Jesus cries, uh, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Uh, pointing to Psalm 22. Uh, so this is even something that some of the early writers debated: what happened during this time. So that's that's something that well, we can take pause and consider. Three o'clock on Friday uh, is when Jesus gave up the spirit, 
and says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Uh, he says it is finished, and, and that's when it's done. So those three time periods on Good Friday, that's just something I've been doing personally in my spiritual life with walk with Christ, is I just take a few moments at those three time periods just to really stop and contemplate what Jesus did for us. And, um, you know, we should do it every Friday, but especially Good Friday, it's a, it's a good time to really stop and think about the death of Christ. And then, of course, Easter right. Sunday, uh, celebrating the, the, the glorious resurrection early uh, on Resurrection Sunday. So what a day that is. Right. Yeah. And uh, what, what, a, what a time we get a chance to think about. And now... Um, Maybe with uh, less distractions of, of sports and, and uh, uh, some of the other things that we find ourselves being distracted with. Absolutely. Um, we might give a little, little bit more thought to this. Um, and I, and I, that's been our prayer, that, that people start seeing the purpose of the cross, of what this was. So we at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending time together with us. And we do value your time. Our prayer is that the pod, this podcast helps stretch your mind and is in a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. Yeah. been listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. It's my privilege to announce to you that the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is now available on Kindle. So you can get the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics in all formats now. It's available on Kindle, as well as paperback, hardcover, and you can also find it on the Nook at BarnesandNoble.com. So please go and order your copy today and share it, or maybe you'd like to share it with a friend. Whatever the case may be, help us as we get the word out and let people know that we have a faith worth believing in. Did you know that you can help the Bellator Christian Ministries by simply leaving a review? If you are enjoying this podcast, help us out by leaving a positive review on the app where this podcast is found. This helps increase the exposure of the podcast and helps others find it more easily. If you enjoy this podcast, leave a review. If not, send me an email. Either way, we want to thank you for supporting BellatorChristie.com and the Bellator Christie Podcast.